0: Living in space. It's getting closer this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond and I've got a special episode for you. Your friendly PlanRad host was a guest of the National Space Society at its Space Settlement Summit last October. We'll devote today's show to conversations I had at that two-day event in Southern California. Never fear, Bruce Betts will still drop by for this week's What's Up, including his guide to seeing the January 31st total lunar eclipse. The National Space Society has quite a vision People living and working in thriving communities beyond the Earth, and the use of the vast resources of space for the dramatic betterment of humanity. Its mission is to promote progress toward that lofty goal. Never before has it seemed so achievable. It's why the Society invited a select group of space leaders to the Second Space Settlement Summit. Mark Hopkins helped create the organization more than 30 years ago. He had been a leader of the L-5 Society that preceded the NSS and has occupied other leadership positions ever since, serving now as chair of the Society's executive committee. This meeting, the Space Settlement Summit, seems to be right at the core of that mission.
1: Uh, That's exactly right. The fundamental goal of the National Space Society and our precursor organization, the L5 Society before it, well, it, is uh, space settlement and the use of the vast resources of space for the dramatic betterment of, of humanity. You know, we started this all in 1975 when things like space settlement were considered to be pretty crazy ideas. But uh, what has happened in the last few years is that many of these ideas are becoming mainstream due to people like Elon Musk, SpaceX, talking about colonizing Mars, and Jeff Bezos second richest man in the world talking about millions of people living in space, which are basically our core ideas. So we we decided that if we're going to continue to be the leader uh, in this uh, area, uh, we need to double down and uh, have uh, a conference which is very specifically aimed at our core idea, space settlement. And then in a more general and perhaps important sense, the reason space settlement is so important is because the vast majority by orders of magnitude, factors of 100,000 million of the resources of the solar system lie in space rather than on the Earth. The sun, for example, puts out 10 trillion, that's a trillion with a T, times the amount of energy used by currently used by the human race. And by tapping into those resources, we can improve the standard of living of all humans by a, a very large factor. You used a phrase when you opened this conference uh, this
0: morning and talked about uh, human destiny or manifest destiny?
1: Yes. For various reasons I'm arguing that the manifest destiny of the human race as a whole is a space settlement, uh, because if that's where the wealth is, that's where the resources are. Look, the United States has a standard of living, which is about a factor of six uh, above the average of the world, but the uh, median standard of living is much lower than that. The majority of people in the world live at a standard of living which is a factor of 25 below what it is in the United States. And poor people in the world, bottom fourth, live at a standard of living which is one-fourth of what it is in the United States. In order to raise everybody up to what the standard of living is in the United States, not to mention improve the standard of living of people in advanced countries like the United States as well, we've got to really increase the size of the human economy by a factor of, an order of magnitude at least, And where are we going to get the resources to do that and do that in a way which is environmentally benign? It's increasingly difficult to see how you're going to do that using only the finite resources of Earth. But if we can tap into the near infinite resources of space, then these problems go away. If we can just smash the so-called limits to growth. Are you
0: excited to see this? I mean, do you see... Even though it may still only be scratching the surface, do you see things moving the way the NSS has for so many years, how you personally have felt we need to go?
1: Just a couple weeks ago, the vice president of the United States announced that a major goal of the U.S. human space program would be a return to the moon. This time, it looks like the idea is to stay there permanently. And you do that, and you're setting up, you're setting yourselves up to evolve into a, a lunar settlement. One of the things we'll be talking about at, at this conference And, you know, statements by Elon Musk, putting a million people on Mars in 40 to 100 years. All this is very much in line with uh, National Space Society, uh, which we've been saying for years. So basically, we're winning, uh, which is really cool. Uh, I've been doing this for over 40 years. To uh, see what I've been pushing for so long uh, makes me feel very good. Mark Hopkins of the National
0: Space Society at that group's Space Settlement Summit last October Many of you will remember author, speaker, and journalist Rod Pyle. He was my guest last February when we talked about his great book, Amazing Stories of the Space Age. Like me, Rod is a longtime NSS member and has worked with that society on several projects, including a new one he told me about when we sat down during a lunch break at the summit. Amazing Stories of the Space Age. Did I get it right? You did. Great, fun, fun book. But you've got another one coming out, and it's part of why you're here today.
2: But you've been involved in NSS for years, right? Yeah, I got involved when it was still National Space Institute back in the mid-'80s. And then they merged the L5 Society, and I stayed active for a while, and then I got pulled off into evil television land and so forth and came back in the mid, mid-early mid 2000s. And it's it's been nice to come back because... As you know, during that period of time, we had that kind of false dawn of new space where there were people gathering money and they had different ideas and projects. Not much of it really happened. Then here came SpaceX and suddenly it became real and I thought, okay, i got to get back in the fold. So I think things are really taking off, which is one of the reasons why this, this is only the second year of this conference, so it's one of the reasons this is happening, I think.
0: This is your next book, right, is about what's being talked about here uh, and new space.
2: Well, I have four books slated for 2018. (laughs) The one I'm working on right now with the National Space Society is called Space 2.0. And it is all about the new space age. So yes, this conference is really relevant to that. And in fact, I'm delaying delivery of the manuscript by a few weeks to make sure I incorporate the latest stuff. So it's been exciting to come here what is planned and what's going on and what some of the new ideas are. And really talking about the NSS at its core has been about space settlement for decades. But part of the discussion that was difficult was to really build a good business case for it. Now a lot of what we're hearing, including from the National Space Council and a few other places mm-hmm. and bits and pieces, is we need a business case, we need infrastructure, we need logistical support, we need a price set for fuels and commodities and water in orbit. We need all this stuff so that we can build this in a sustainable way so as not just snap our fingers and magically we have a big tin can out it L5 now, there's a real solid incremental business case being built. The aerospace giants are buying into it. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of Blue Origin are buying into it. So I think that's what we're really seeing that's so exciting here.
0: Do you think that now this this vaporware is becoming
2: the real thing? It sounds like it. I do. And I think, I mean, they're not bending metal on much of this yet. Elon says he's going to start building the BFR rocket in six months, but that he's already got the tooling done and so forth. Blue Origin hard to say. It's hard to get news out of that organization. The traditional aerospace contractors are paying for studies and then going to NASA, you know, saying we'd like some money to pursue the Deep Space Gateway or Mars Base Camp or what have you. But there is a lot of talk, I know, especially at places like ULA where they've got the ACES reusable upper stage. So you've got a space tug that you can park in orbit and refuel, leave it there for, I think, up to six months. Now you're looking at something where you really are putting together this infrastructure that can support continual operation now you've got a reason to go to the surface of the moon get water, process it make fuel, park it in orbit and so forth so yeah, I think it's becoming real maybe five years
0: and you bring up ULA, United Launch Alliance, and it was only hours before this summit that they announced this new partnership with Bigelow, Robert Bigelow, who's
2: you know wants to build inflatable space structures. They want to put one in low orbit around the moon. Well, that's news to me. I had a little too much shore leave last <laughs> night, so I woke up sort of late this morning. But that makes sense. And I know Bigelow's really been looking into this for a long time. And then we've got NASA with this kind of uh, I, I haven't read the whole thing but the agreement with the russians about we'll agree to agree to study the idea of working together on the deep space <laughs> gateway but it makes sense because they've got hardware that can actually i think be repurposed for parts of this they've got a lot of experience in earth orbital we have a lot of experience in earth orbital so as we move off to this new lunar adventure it would make a certain amount of sense to do it together as long as we can both benefit
0: so you think lunar is, uh, is it? I mean, that's certainly what Vice President Pence is uh, telling us.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can get in trouble for saying this because there's a big Mars First crowd. And I understand their concerns. If we go to the moon, we'll be there for probably 10 or 15 years unless some private entity pushes on to Mars. Mm-hmm. And I get that. But I think at this point, from everything I see, I'd be interested to hear your opinion, I think Mars is just a bridge too far. It's expensive. It's far. It's dangerous. We still don't really have the human factors worked out. Radiation abatement is a big problem. All these things that we're going to have to do on the moon and even at the Deep Space Gateway, too, in lunar space, that's a radiation exposure experiment, right? You're outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, but you're three days from home. So if something goes wrong, you can hop on the shuttle and come back. I say shuttle, in quotes. So I think it's it's a good idea, and I think it's what we can afford to do, and I think it's what we can get our government to commit to. If you run out of Band-Aids on the moon, they're only three days away. Exactly. And if you run out of Band-Aids on Mars, you have to make them out of potato skins or whatever it is <laughs> Watney did. And plus, you know, there's there's we're going to find a lot with, with the Mars 2020 rover. It's got an even more sophisticated laboratory, uh, more detailed analysis of the soil conditions, I think. And my understanding is from talking to some of the JPL folks that they're still concerned about exactly what we do face with abating the effects of Martian soil. So if we do if you're in orbit, that's fine. Go to Phobos, no big deal. But when you land on a planet that has highly reactive soil, that's full of perchlorate, and it hasn't rained for millions of years, so you breathe that incredibly fine talc like dust and they're talking about very high risks of cancer and so forth, the first number of years on that planet is going to be like living in a nuclear submarine under the ice cap so are we ready for that Mm -hmm. I I don't think we are But the moon is, to coin a phrase, a pretty harsh mistress as well.
0: (laughs) Well played, sir. (laughs) I got to talk with Andy Weir recently and read his new book, Artemis, about a little town on the moon. They are very, very strict about uh, when you come in the airlock, you have uh, air that blows all that nasty moon dust off of you. Because if you breathe any of it, you might just die eventually. Um, It just seems like these places they're going to be mean to us. They don't want us to live there.
2: Yeah, I start a chapter in the New Space 2.0 book with the line that the editor loved, space hates people, (laughs) and then move on to say, but here's all the things we could do to mediate that. But you're right. I mean, the moon is a, a harsh place. I don't think in many ways it's as harsh as Mars. I mean, the gravity is a little less demanding, although Mars ain't much. It's what 38% of Earth's. The nice thing with with the Moon is we've got rock and soil samples, so at least we know what we're dealing with. We don't have that from Mars yet, except in meteorites, which have been banged around and fused and left in space for a long time. So it's good to at least know we're stepping into there. And Andy Weir is probably right. I mean, you're going to have to do all kinds of abatement techniques to make sure that you can have as little interaction with that dust as possible. But there's risks. And I was interviewing a flight surgeon for one of the book chapters at JSC. And I said, you know, we were talking about radiation, we were talking about bone density loss and all this stuff over the long term. I said, okay, it's dangerous out there. It's really dangerous to go to Mars because it's so long and there's so much stuff you're still working on. How many of the people that you see on a regular basis, your astronauts, because you're a flight surgeon, how many of them would go anyway? And he said, Virtually all. (laughs) Of course. You know, they just, they said that, yeah, we get the radiation thing. That's fine. Can we please get on with it? It's dangerous. We knew that when we took the job. And if I die six months earlier because of cancer, because I went to Mars, I'm cool with
0: that. So would you be surprised if uh, we have this conversation 10 years from today and there are people living up there on on Luna, at least the way they live on the ISS now?
2: Well, I'm glad you added that because I think... There's a lot of talk by commercial space about long-term settlement, large-scale settlement. Elon Musk wants cities on Mars. We would like to have large bases on the moon. But I do feel like if we want to get this done quickly, quickly, in quotes, on a more or less an Apollo time scale and really get things moving, it's an expeditionary project to start and then infrastructure follows. So, no, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that within 10 years. Bigger city on the moon, like the European Lunar Village, maybe right at the 10-year mark, Mars shrugs not sure <laughs> don't know what to say about that fun times though what when is the next one of those four books come out space 2.0 comes out in mid-2018 and then i have two sequels to amazing stories of the space age one is amazing stories of the planets which should appeal to your crowd and the other one is heroes of the space age and those are going to be later in 2018
0: all right then we'll have lots of reason to talk again in the coming year you bet and i can't wait <laughs> thanks rod thank you author and space activist rod Pyle. I've got more for you from the recent Space Settlement Summit after the break. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, this is Casey Dreyer, the Director of Space Policy here at the Planetary Society.
3: And I wanted to let you know that right now, Congress is debating the future of NASA's budget. The House has proposed to increase NASA's budget and also increase planetary science in 2018. The Senate, however, has proposed to cut both. You can make your voice heard right now. We've made it easy to learn more if you go to planetary.org slash petition2017. Thank you.
4: You can share your passion for space exploration by giving someone a gift membership to the Planetary Society this holiday season or any time of year. Your friend or loved one would join us as we nurture new and exciting science, advocate for space, and educate the world. The gift of space starts at planetary.org forward slash give space. That's planetary.org forward slash give space. Because, come on, it's space.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. The National Space Society's second space settlement summit came to Santa Monica, California last October. Among the leaders it attracted was Daniel Rasky. Dan is chief of NASA's Space Portal Office at the Ames Research Center. Tell us what the Space Portal Office does. You folks are very well represented here at this meeting about space
3: settlements. Well, we uh, came together in 2005. We were a grassroots organization that we came together to really promote um, commercial space development uh, for both NASA and national benefit. Our tagline when we first formed was the friendly front door to space, because we figured NASA needed at least one. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a friendly face charged with
0: what? I mean what have you been able to accomplish?
3: Well again we we formed together on our own volition, we were four civil servants who were quite interested in commercial space back in mid two thousands. And okay. we saw a lot of opportunity for NASA to partner with the budding commercial space industry to advanced capabilities that were important both NASA and the country and we thought it was being underserved at the time relative to standard NASA programs and so we came together and said okay what can we do to kind of help promote uh, new programmatic structures that would be more receptive and supportive of commercial space and our big win out of that time was the Commercial Orbital Transportation Services Program or COTS. Um, it came out of our office, this whole idea of a metrics based approach for space development um, in contrast to the standard approach was something called cost plus contracting which is what uh, NASA does on, on, on most of its very large programs. COTS was,
0: is it fair to say, revolutionary? Oh,
3: absolutely. I am convinced that in part um, we were able to go forward with it because so many people thought it would fail and mm. thought it would become the poster child for don't try this, Okay. <laughs> And uh, But it actually succeeded famously uh, was instrumental to the success of SpaceX. Without the COTS program, I don't think Elon would be in the space business right now. Yeah, what a different world it would be. Return on investment. There was a really uh, impressive figure given by
0: one of your people this morning.
3: Yeah, actually, one of our former colleagues, uh, Dr. Re- Rebecca Spike Kaiser, who ran the Office of Strategic Formulation at NASA Headquarters, Uh, when COTS was moving along nicely and when SpaceX had successfully launched, I think their second Falcon 9 at that time, she became interested in documenting what kind of cost impact is this having relative to, to government contracting. And so she actually commissioned a study to look at the projected costs for doing a rocket development program to get to a Falcon 9 capability versus the amount of money that we know that Elon and SpaceX invested to get to that level. And NASA actually has a, a costing tool uh, which is called NAFCOM, which stands for NASA Air Force Costing Methodology. So it's a costing tool that you put in. You want to do a piece of space hardware, you know its size, you know some of its other attributes, it will come back with here's the, the expected cost to develop that piece of hardware. And so when they ran uh, the NAFCOM model, on the, uh, the Falcon 9 capability. They came up with a cost just under $4 billion, mm. with a B, and we know at that time from several sources that Elon had spent under $400 million. We were all very surprised. Well, we knew we had lower costs, but I think the, the conventional wisdom, okay, maybe a factor of two, maybe a factor of three. Uh, but when the study was done and showed a factor of 10, it caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, Subsequently, we actually looked at another program called SpaceHab. This is a private activity that actually Bruce Pittman was instrumental in uh, to develop a logistics model that flew in the payload bay of the shuttle Um, in the same way it was done privately, you know, with uh, um, working with NASA. Privately and very successfully. Very very successfully at the time. And we documented a factor of eight cost savings for Mm -hmm. SpaceHab. So, yeah, so significant cost savings when you use these more effective... Uh, contracting methods when there is sufficient commercial interest, and that, that commercial interest is really key. You have a very nice additional benefit, which is private sector jobs, uh, which in a lot of ways are are more attractive than government jobs, and that's something that we're seeing now um, coming out of the COTS program, and including places like Alabama, uh, where um, Jeff Bezos, who runs Blue Origin, has just opened a big rocket engine factory in Alabama. So suddenly they're seeing the other side of the coin that uh, promoting commercial space interests and and economic development uh, can lead to jobs. Okay, it's not uh, just a threat to government jobs. It can actually generate private sector jobs as well. You are talking about adding an L to... Uh, the beginning of that, LCOTs. Yeah, Lunar COTS. The idea is to take the best practices uh, from the original COTS program, which was put in place to establish commercial transportation services to the International Space Star- Station, both for cargo and, and then now for crew, but uh, use some of the best practices from COTS to help engage development of lunar capabilities, lunar surface capabilities, um, and that's why we call that Lunar COTS. Uh, similarly, the government putting out contracts to industry to demonstrate certain capabilities for lunar surface access and other lunar surface infrastructure that we believe would be very important for lunar development and also address a number of NASA needs relative to exploration and development. So we're calling that Lunar COTS.
0: As you think back 12 years to 2005 when the four of you said, Hey, why don't we we do this new approach? You're feeling pretty good, not only
3: about where we are, but where we're going? At this point, yes. I have to say, looking back, if you had told me it was going to take 12 years to really um, get this model to be adopted and expanded, I would have been a little disheartened. Um, But uh, things take time. And uh, the development of the emerging uh, or the commercial space industry since 2005 with SpaceX, with companies like Blue Origin from Jeff Bezos, smaller organizations such as Astrobotic, ULA. um, It's been quite, I think, uh, rewarding to see how we are expanding the commercial space industry and generating jobs and capability for the U.S., and so that side of it is quite pleasing to see. So how do you think you and your colleagues are going to feel next year, if all
0: goes well, and we see uh, Boeing and SpaceX uh, put the first commercial crews
3: up in low-Earth orbit? Oh, we'll be very pleased about that, and actually we've been staying reasonably close with the uh, the NASA headquarters manager, Phil McAllister, who runs that program, and things are going quite well with commercial crew. Um, and again, Dragon's flying my heat shield, so I'm always pleased to see whenever SpaceX is doing things with, with Dragon. And, and the public attention to what is going on, the excitement and the bright eyes of students and, and other younger individuals when you tell them about some of the opportunities that we see coming in you know, for space. That's uh, quite rewarding as well. Thank you,
0: Daniel, both for this conversation but also for forging that uh, new path uh, into uh, space. You're very welcome, and uh, the best is yet to come. Dan Rasky, Chief of NASA's Space Portal Office. I'll close my coverage of the NSS Space Settlement Summit with something that caught me by surprise. There are about 90 undergraduates at the University of California, Berkeley, who have largely given up the usual extracurricular pastimes of college students. There's little time for keg parties, football games, and road trips when you're building a rocket. They call that rocket Eureka, which is not by coincidence, also California's state motto. It's all part of Project Carmen, and that name will become clear as we meet two leaders of the effort.
5: Uh, My name is Dorothea McCree. I'm a freshman at UC Berkeley.
0: And you're the propulsion engineer for this project? Uh,
5: I am the uh, manager of the propulsion team, uh, yes, in at uh, Space Enterprise at Berkeley.
4: And you are? Uh, my name is Paul Shin. Uh, I'm a second year at UC Berkeley, and I was actually the co-founder and now the chief business development officer for Space Enterprise at Berkeley.
0: And has this all been generated from the bottom up by students, by undergraduates at UC Berkeley?
4: Yes, this is completely student developed that is something that i absolutely love to tell everybody uh in regards to organization um there has been uh no faculty sponsor in the beginning no um professional that came in to help us set this entire organization up it was completely student-led student-motivated and student-driven um up till this point You are the first
0: freshman propulsion systems manager I've ever met. That's quite an opportunity.
5: Yeah, I um, became really interested in space propulsion sometime last year, actually, when I was working on a capstone project uh, for my high school. Met Paul and Eric while they were recruiting, interviewed, and did well in the interview, (laughs) and was asked to be propulsion manager, um, and took the job. and it's, it was a very good decision. Um, it's a lot of time and uh, a lot of commitment, but I uh, taught myself a lot of rocket science in about two weeks, and now I know how rockets work. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: it is rocket science, as you said.
5: It is rocket science. <laughs> this is This is a
0: rather ambitious project for I mean, even if you were grad students, but for undergrads? The
4: success of this project and the success of successfully launching this rocket into space, passing the 100-kilometer Carmen Line, uh, which is something that nobody, no college team has ever done before, mm. being able to do that is like an indication that there has been a new awakening, of, uh, a new capability of what college students can really do. Uh, and in that sense, we find that using the word Eureka, I have found it uh, to be uh, a fitting motto. Uh, and a a name uh, for something uh, as grandiose as as this.
5: There are business students, there are marketing students, um, there are humanities students, uh, but specifically within design, um, most of us are in fact STEM majors.
0: What is the current status? Where do you stand and how far off is going to be at least a static test uh, or launch? Definitely. Uh,
4: So the work plan for our organization right now that we're following to make sure that uh, we're able to meet the July 2018 launch that's what makes our organization truly different because it's not a vision for us. It is not a strategic goal that we set that we're going to be able to meet within the next five, ten years. It is literally the goal we have set for this uh, this year uh, within the, it actually less than nine months. And because of that short timeline that we have, the, the motivation and the drive and just stress and urgency within our organization is just always apparent and, and it, it, I like to say it's almost like uh, kind of like the engineers that were working on the Apollo 11 program uh, that were you know making sure that absolutely no matter what they can make that uh, make that launch before any other uh, competing uh, nation
5: this is is really something that uh, I love doing that we all love doing and it's something that I look forward to staying up really late two nights a week and then using up my Saturday to, to work on.
0: What are you getting out of the experience?
4: Seeing this grow from a passion that I had to now a passion that 90 other students share uh, constantly to get something done, it's, it's more than just a, a leadership opportunity or a leadership experience for me at this moment. It is it, This organization is, has not, just no longer just became an experience to hone uh, my business skills and do something pretty insane with other people. It's teaching me what needs to be done to do something great just mm. in life.
0: If all goes well, yes. where is that launch going to take place?
5: Uh, the launch will be taking place at Spaceport America in White Sands, New Mexico.
0: I wish you and the entire team of 90 undergrads, all undergrads? All undergrads. Wow. All undergrads. <laughs> all of you, are the greatest of success. Eureka, and uh, get some sleep between now and July 18th. I'll try. (laughs) Two of the UC Berkeley undergrads who are part of Project Carmen with the goal of becoming the first college team to boost a rocket past the threshold of space. I want to thank the National Space Society for inviting me to cover its Space Settlement Summit. At Astra, folks. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is uh, at Planetary Society headquarters. He's the director of science and technology for the Society. Does uh, so much more that we don't need to go into it. It'd take too long because you do so much. Huh. But uh, I'm, I'm really glad that What's Up is,
6: is on that list. It is indeed. And I enjoy this, this part. So let's get right into it, shall we? So we've got Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in the pre-dawn east, but I want to focus again on the total lunar eclipse visible from Asia, Australia, the Pacific Ocean, Western North America, and Eastern Europe. Here are some times for you in UT, the partial umbral eclipse. So when you first really start seeing the shadow is 1148 UT on the 31st, greatest eclipse is 1330 and the umbral eclipse ends at 1511 in Pacific time. That's 348 AM for the beginning of the umbral eclipse, 530 AM for greatest eclipse And the umbral eclipse would end at 7.11 a.m., so indeed uh, for even Western America, but certainly middle America's, the sun rises before the eclipse ends. Very much uh,
0: something to look forward to. I'm going to try and uh, get up at that hour and, uh, and check it out. Good
6: job. Me too, I think. On to this week in space history. Uh, we've entered um, the, the dark week of planetary exploration, at least NASA's human program. Uh, in 1967, three astronauts perished in the Apollo 1 fire, and in 1986, seven perished in the Challenger accident. And then just coming up a few days later uh, is the anniversary of the Columbia accident in 2003. Always
0: very sad and and so eerie uh that all three
6: of these happen in the same week it is indeed but we uh sad but a good thing to to remember the astronauts here's some straight happy news 2004 14 years ago opportunity landed on mars and it's still going still roving absolutely amazing it really is i have very few electronic devices that have lasted anywhere near that long
0: I don't think I have any. I, I think uh, my body barely runs. No,
6: never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we move on to Random Space fact. A lovely rendition. Thank you. You're welcome. So Neptune, Neptune's Adam's Ring has brighter portions called ring arcs. They were the first elements of Neptune's ring system to be discovered. It wasn't initially clear that there was even a complete ring, which there is. But the arcs are regions within the ring where there's a higher density of material, causing a higher brightness. The five short arcs are named Fraternité, Egalité, One and Deux, and uh, Liberté and Courage. So let me guess. These were discovered by someone who speaks
0: French indeed it was it was discovered by french observers has anybody figured out why this material has not why it's kind of clumped on on one arc of this these rings uh, why it hasn't spread out more is it just
6: gravity it's uh, it's clumpy. Uh, people are still arguing about it, <laughs> uh, so there are several different theories. Some of them tied to a small moon called Galatea, which uh, orbits just inside that ring. They're just there are a bunch of different ideas, and to my knowledge, no one's fully satisfied with any of them. But maybe some of the people proposing the theories are. All right, very interesting. We move on to the trivia contest. As measured by surface area, what is the largest known body of liquid, so in this case methane and ethane, on Saturn's moon, Titan? How do we do? Bigger response than average,
0: and and all I can think is that people love Titan. (laughs) I do. Valerie Wood in uh, Charleston, West Virginia, she said, Love the show. A rare entry from me. Maybe I'll be lucky this time. Well, Valerie, maybe. She says Kraken or Kraken Mare is the largest body of liquid on Titan's surface. Correct? That is indeed correct. Then, Valerie, you've uh, hit the jackpot. Congratulations. Uh, We're going to be sending you a Planetary Society t-shirt. It's really cool. And a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. I've got more, of course. Garrett Kingman in Stanford, California... If you think of it proportionately, because Crecan Mare is apparently about 154,000 square miles, and I I may have that someplace here, about 400,000 square kilometers, that's about half a percent of Titan's total surface area, or about the same proportion of Titan as Argentina occupies on Earth. That's big. (laughs) (laughs) That is Indeed. Here's Craig Balog in uh, Woodbridge, New Jersey, who knows how to get himself mentioned by us on the show. He says that's the equivalent, if his math is correct, of about 12.5 billion light sail two solar sails. <laughs> that's actually how I think of it. <laughs> we, of course, are petitioning to make the area of the solar sail the standard measure of area. Uh, uh, and, and we heard from a whole bunch of people, including Christopher Beck in Williamsburg, Virginia, that uh, it's bigger than the Caspian Sea. That's the biggest sea on Earth, or about the size of five lake superiors. Of course, it ain't water. Marcel John Craigsman in uh, the Netherlands, a regular listener, he says, I hear it's lovely this time of year with a balmy 99 degrees
6: Kelvin. Yum. No, it is. It's nice. You can do some uh, sailing and swimming and actually none of those things are good ideas <laughs> just uh, bring
0: the dry suit the, the really thick dry suit uh, finally this from Mark Wilson in uh, my own town of San Diego he says once the sun sets on Titan this lake Kraken Mare becomes a real night Mare
6: <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute <coughs> okay there we go <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know how I feel about the fact that you have that now <laughs> Well, I'll I'll try and use restraint. Tell us, what do you got for next time? Back to Neptune's rings. What are the names of Neptune's five principal rings? The names of Neptune's five principal rings go to planetary.org slash radio contest.
0: You have until the 31st, the last day of January. That's uh, Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer to this one. And once again you might win yourself a lovely Planetary Society t-shirt with uh, Mars and Earth intersecting in an interplanetary Venn diagram and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account, that worldwide network of uh, telescopes operated on a nonprofit basis. On behalf of uh, lots and lots and lots of people, you can donate this to a school, an astronomy club, or uh, keep it for yourself and uh, do some serious sky-watching.
6: All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about your favorite ring and your least favorite ring. Thank you, and good night. My favorite ring. It's on my finger. <laughs> <Aww>.
0: <laughs> it really is. I, I like it. Uh, he's Bruce Betts. He's uh, the director of science and technology for the Planetary Society. He runs rings around the rest of us and, and joins us every week here for What's Up. Have you seen Paul Hildebrandt's great documentary, Fighting for Space? Well, Paul is now producing First to the Moon, the Journey of Apollo 8. It will feature extended conversations with the three astronauts who became the first humans to venture past low Earth orbit. You can learn more about the project at Paul's Kickstarter page for the film. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California and is made possible by its pioneering members. Danielle Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies.